0: Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chespro Baptist Church. We're finishing out our series entitled Advent, the Unexpected King. Today, we're just going to take a look at the Nativity. We're going to walk through Luke 2 verse by verse. And the title of the message this morning is Mary, Did You Know? Please enjoy. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child, While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I'm going to title the message this morning, Mary, Did You Know? Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for everything you've done for us today. Lord, I want to thank you for the gift of your Son, Dear Jesus, I am so thankful that you left the glories of heaven and you humbled yourself to come down to this earth to be born a humble birth, Lord, to be our Savior. Thank you for the greatest gift that we could ever get on Christmas, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us as we reflect on the Christmas story, as we apply it to our lives today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. In 1984, a man by the name of Mark Lowry wrote the words to Mary Did You Know? And he actually wrote uh, the words for Christmas Play. Well, he kept those words with him and he carried them around wherever he went. And eventually Mark Lowry, as most of you know, um, first of all, Mark Lowry is hilarious. Uh, but Martin Lowry would eventually uh, become a songwriter and a singer, and he began touring with the Gaither Vocal Band. In 1990, an artist by the name of Buddy Green began touring with the Gaithers, and Martin Lowry showed him the words to Mary Did You Know, and Buddy Green actually composed the music, and the song was born. Now, everybody that has recorded Mary Did You Know, it has been a massive hit. From Mark to uh, there were some Christian singers, Amy Grant to Kenny Rogers. I mean, everybody that records this song, I mean, it just blows up and becomes a massive hit. Now, most people like it. There are people that don't like it. They look at Mark and say, Mark, Mary did know. You just ask the question, Mary, did you know? I'm telling you, Mary did know today. But what I want to do is I want to let you know that during the story in Luke 2, Mary did know what was going on. And we're going to do something a little different this morning. Uh, we're going to, all we're going to do this morning is we're going to read. We're going to do a Bible study on the nativity. We're going to read through the Scripture verse by verse. And we're going to do a Bible study on the nativity story. I don't think I've ever done that on a Sunday morning. This morning, I don't have a fancy introduction And I don't have a three-point alliterated plan. We're just going to look at the text of the Bible. But what, what, what I want you to keep in mind as we read these words is who wrote these words. These words were written by a man named Luke. Now, Luke was a medical doctor. So not only didn't Luke give us a very good account of the death of Jesus, but he also gives us a very good account of the birth of Jesus. And the reason why is because we know Luke interviewed to make this compilation to make this account. Luke interviewed eyewitnesses. We know that Luke interviewed Mary for this account. He went straight to the source. Luke talked to Mary, the mother of Christ, to, to, to compile this account of the nativity, so you know that what you're getting is you know is eyewitness testimony. This is not only God-breathed and God-inspired, it is eyewitness testimony from somebody who was there. That's one of the reasons why in the book of Luke, the genealogy of Jesus in Luke is Mary's genealogy, because Mary was interviewed for this. So let's go to the first verse, and we'll jump right into it this morning. The first verse says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. So it's very important to understand politically where we are in in the world that Jesus is coming into. And kind of the first uh, name we come across, Caesar Augustus, kind of sheds light on the political world Jesus is being into. Of course, Israel is under Roman rule. And the leader of Rome at the time is a man named Caesar Augustus. Now, just to give you an idea and a little context who Caesar Augustus was, let's go back to the Caesar before Caesar Augustus. You might have uh, heard this, this, this guy's name. The leader before Caesar Augustus was a guy you might have heard of him. His name was Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was such a famous... And was such a great leader that his name, Caesar, come to mean emperor. And every leader of Rome for then on was called Caesar because of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was actually a poor person. He was a poor man. But he joined the army and he rose up through the ranks because he had a great military mind. Julius Caesar made many contributions to the world that me and you still use today. One thing being our calendar. Now, uh, the Julian calendar that he, uh, that he made and that he put forth has been used for thousands of years. And even today, we use the Gregorian calendar. It's only slightly different. So it's like somebody takes something somebody else made, tweaks it a little bit, and calls it their own. The only thing we did with the Gregorian calendar is we took the Julian calendar, and we added a leap day every few hundred years to keep the days straight, And then that's the Gregorian calendar. So even the calendar that we use today was mainly put forth by Julius Caesar. But the thing about Julius Caesar is Julius Caesar, he did not have any heirs of his own. He didn't have any sons. But he became very fond of his great nephew, who was named Octavius. He became very fond of Octavius, and so he adopted Octavius as his own son. At the age of 55, Julius Caesar was stabbed 23 times on the Senate floor and died. Stabbed by senators, okay? He died on the Senate floor at 55 years of age. Years later, his adopted son, Octavius, would begin to rule. Octavius went before the Senate and demanded that they give him a title. Well, at the time, the Senate was very impressed ...with this leader, and so they granted his request and gave him the title of Augustus. So his name became, instead of Octavius, his name became Caesar Augustus... ...which literally translates to the great emperor. Now up to this point, I want you to understand that the word Augustus... ...had only been used to describe holy things... It had only been used to describe uh, divine things. It had only been used to describe the gods. So Caesar Augustus is in essence saying, I am a god. And up to this point, Rome had always prided themselves in being a republic, but Julius Caesar, uh, uh, Caesar Augustus did away with that. They were no longer a republic because Caesar Augustus stole all the power away from the Senate. And he became the, the head honcho. He had all the power. He became the ruler of the known world. He had all the power to himself. We have found inscriptions with uh, coins and things that, that say on them, Caesar Augustus, savior of the world. Now, isn't it interesting that this man, this great emperor, Caesar Augustus, who claims himself to be the savior of the world, this is the time that the true savior of the world, Jesus, comes into the world. So Caesar Augustus is in power. He is great emperor. He is the head potentate. He is ruler over the known world. And he decrees that a census be taken place So everybody will know his supremacy as emperor. Let's go to verse 2. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, when you have a census, there are two reasons to have a census. Reason number one is for military purposes. They want to know... Uh, how, much, how many fighting men that they have in their armies. You see, the Romans would go into these territories, and as they would take over these territories, they would draft young men into their army, as opposed from taking armies from Rome and marching them across the world. They'll just go over there and make an army over there. So they had to know how many fighting men that they had. Now, the second reason to have a census is all about the money. I'm going to say it's all about the Benjamins, okay? It's all about how much money they can get because Rome taxed the world. And, and, you know, in fact, it was Benjamin Franklin who said there are two things constant in your life, death and taxes. That's the truth right there. Those two things are going to come. So listen, but there are reasons why Rome taxed the world. The first reason... Why Rome? Because you see, when when Rome took over your country, when Rome took over that territory, there were certain Roman perks that came along with being a part of Rome. The first Roman perk is known as Pax Romana. Pax Romana was this relative peace that was ensured relative peace that was ensured to all the provinces of Rome. See, what they would do is they would take Roman guards and they would, they would station them on the, on the roads and they would station them in the cities and there always was an enforced relative peace uh, in Rome because of these guards. Now, listen, that still meant you couldn't get out of line. You couldn't say anything about, uh, bad about Rome. You better not step out against Rome. You'll find yourself on a cross. The second second reason why uh, the the Romans taxed is, did you know that the ancient Romans, that they paved over 50,000 miles of roads? Let me tell you something about the Roman builders. The Romans were great builders. There are still Roman roads today that you can go and that you can walk on and that you can see, and they're still sturdy, whereas we built our roads, and they have to repave them every 10 years, okay? But, but Rome, the Rome, Romans built roads to last. So we're talking about Caesar Augustus, and, and we know who this guy is. Now, the next guy that's mentioned is a guy named Quirinius. Now, Quirinius is, is a little different story. We actually run into a problem with this guy. We run into an issue. The Bible says, there was first, the first, uh, this was the first sentence taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And the reason why we run into a problem here is there's an apparent contradiction. Now, I want you to notice I picked my words carefully. I didn't say there was a contradiction. I said there's an apparent contradiction because there's no contradictions in your Bible. Okay, But there's an apparent contradiction here, and uh, most people would skip over this. They wouldn't talk about it. They wouldn't bring it up. I want to bring it up because I want you to be informed. I would rather you hear about this here in church than you get out there in the world and some liberal professor try to shake your faith into the the dependability of the Bible, of the Scripture. Okay, So I want to talk about this here. The problem that we have is we have historical records that say that this guy named Quirinius, he ruled Syria from 6 AD to 9 AD. There's a great Jewish historian, his name is Josephus, and Josephus tells us that it was during this reign of Quirinius that this controversial census took place. The problem with that is that's too late for our story. It's actually 10 years too late. It's actually after the death of Herod. So how do we fix this problem? Well, number one, and you guys have heard, you regulars have heard me say this before, archaeology always confirms the Bible. Archaeology always confirms the Bible. Archaeology never goes against the word of God. What they found is they found a city near Rome, and they found this papyrus in in this city near Rome that that states that it was during this time that there was one governor of Syria that had two separate terms, that he reigned for a little bit and then stopped and then began reigning again. And the most scholars believe that this is Quirinius, that actually reigned two separate times. And it says it was the first census which means there's more than one census. So that's one way to look at it. Another way to fix this issue is in the word first itself. And in, in the, in the word first is the Greek word protos. Protos can be translated first, but it can also be translated before. So if you play with the syntax a little bit, it could be Sam that the census took place before Quirinius was governing. Either way, it solves the problem. Either way, your Bible is dependable. Your Bible is dependable. There's better history in this book than anything else you'll find uh, in your life. Okay? Now, listen, I'll tell you, let's go to verse 3. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now, we don't believe. That Rome cared where you grew up up at, okay? We don't believe that it was a, a, a Roman uh, requirement that you go back to the city of your ancestors. Rome really didn't care about that. Rome wanted to know how many fighting men they had, and they wanted to know uh, they wanted to know about the money. How much money are you going to give us? So they didn't care about that. But the thing is, is this was probably. A Roman requirement with a Jewish stipulation. So when you are a Jew, your ancestry is tied to your family land. It's tied to where you grew up at. It's tied to which tribe you belong to. Family land, it was illegal in God's law to sell family land. Family land had to stay in the family. Even if you did have to sell it And the Jubilee year, it came back to the family. It was illegal uh, to sell family land. Okay, so, it's, so your lineage and your ancestry, and it's tied to your hometown, to where you grew up at. So this was probably a Roman requirement, but there was a Jewish stipulation because of the way the Jews structured their government that the Jews had to go back to their, home, to their homeland. I mean, look, they kept, they kept immaculate records in their hometown. I mean, look at 1 and 2 Kings. Look at 1 Chronicles, Second Chronicles. They kept really good records, and it was all based on your hometown. Now, Mary and Joseph were... I'm going pre- to pretend there's a map here, okay? Looking at a map, you've got Galilee which is up here, and Nazareth is in Galilee. Go down a little bit and you've got Samaria. And then you go down a little bit and you've got Judea with Jerusalem and Bethlehem is just, uh, just short of there. So Mary and Joseph were in Nazareth, but their ancestor was of David. So they had to go back to Bethlehem. Now, I want you to understand, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, that's a 90-mile walk, okay? Okay. Now, listen, if you ever go to the Holy Land, which, you know, I hope to do one day, I think it'd be pretty cool to go on a tour of Israel. But if you go to the Holy Land one day and you get on a tour bus and you drive from Nazareth to Bethlehem in a tour bus, it's not that bad. You'll make it in an hour or so. Man, you'll have air conditioning. You might have some snacks uh, with you. And man, it'll be an enjoyable trip looking at the countryside. It, wasn't, it was not an enjoyable trip for Mary and Joseph, okay? The Jews usually traveled 20 miles a day. So 90 miles with a pregnant woman, man, that's a hard trip. Pregnant, they probably, uh, they probably traveled about 10 miles a day because of Mary's condition. So that's a week and a half to two weeks uh, traveling down the road. Listen, this was a very difficult task uh, for people, okay? This was a very difficult task. We had issues driving Emily to the hospital when, when she was about to have Colin, okay? I couldn't imagine walking 90 miles, okay? Um, listen, so this was a task. This really couldn't come at a more inconvenient time uh, for Mary and Joseph if it really couldn't. See, here's the thing. They not only went down to Bethlehem because of a Roman requirement. They not only went down to Bethlehem because of a Jewish stipulation. They didn't go down to Bethlehem because the law required it. They went down to Bethlehem because it was the plan of God. See, it was God's plan all along. You see, because there's a prophecy in the Old Testament, a prophecy in Micah 5, uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 which says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel, his goings forth from long ago, from the days of eternity. They had to go to Bethlehem, didn't they? Let me tell you something about that verse in Micah. Mary and Joseph knew that verse. Mary and Joseph had grown up going to the synagogues and listening to the priests get up and listening to the Pharisees get up and sit in the seat of Moses and read the Torah and read this scripture. Joseph was required to memorize the Torah. They knew this verse. They also knew that the angel told them that the baby was going to be the Messiah and they knew the city that Messiah should come from. And I bet when they got word that they had to go to Bethlehem and they knew it was going to be about the time the baby would be born, that they just kind of looked at themselves and said, ah, see, God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing after all. So not only was it law to go down there, it was also the plan of God. Here's what I want you to see. Caesar may have been ruling but God was overruling. God was overruling. I want to tell you today that it doesn't matter who's in the White House, it doesn't matter who the governor is, it doesn't matter who the mayor is, it doesn't matter who is, who's in Buckingham Palace, God is the overruler. Nothing escapes His control. Nothing escapes His sovereignty. He is steering the ship. He is in heaven. He is overruling over all of this. Nothing happens without our God say-so. Nothing in your life Our God is a providential God. He is a sovereign God. He is on the throne. He is in control. He has not forgotten you. He knows what you're going through. He knows you're having a tough time. He knows about your crying. He knows about your depression. He sees inside of you and he is in control. He always was, he is, and he always will be. God is the overruler. Let's go to verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Now, I want you to see that one word up. It says he went up to Galilee. Remember our map? If you look at a map, uh, Galilee's up here. So you would actually be going down to Bethlehem. But the Bible says up. There are two things that come into play here. Number one, when an Israelite traveled towards Jerusalem, they were going up. They were going up anytime they traveled to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the holy city. But also, another thing about it is is elevation. Okay? Bethlehem is higher in elevation than than, uh, uh, Nazareth was. Okay? So, unlike your grandparents that said uh, they traveled back and forth to school uphill both ways, okay? Now, I'm telling you, I've heard stories. My grandparents have told me this, okay? But literally for Mary and Joseph, it was uphill the whole way, all the way to Bethlehem. So let's talk about the names of these cities, okay? The first city name is Nazareth. Now, the Gospels tell us that the Old Testament scripture says that he will be called a Nazarene. I'm going to bust any bubbles, but there's no verse like that in the Old Testament. Not one verse. You read through your English Old Testament and you will not find the word Nazareth. You will not find the word Nazarene. That's not in your English Old Testament. Okay. So what exactly is the gospel saying when it says that the Old Testament claims this? Well, here's the thing. It doesn't say that there's a specific prophecy, but what it does say is that the prophets, plural, and in general said uh, that he would, be, uh, from, he would be a Nazarene, even though in our English Old Testament, Nazareth and Nazarene is not in there. So what's going on? Once again, is the Bible wrong? No, the Bible is not wrong. Let's go back to what... Uh, the word Nazareth means, okay? You go to the root of the word Nazareth and you get the Hebrew word netzer, okay? Netzer, you know what netzer means? Netzer means branch and netzer means tender shoot. Oh, hold on a second. Those are names for the Messiah. So you wouldn't get that from an English Old Testament but you would get that from the Hebrew Torah. Absolutely, you would get it from the Hebrew Old Testament. You definitely would. So, uh, we know that the Messiah is gonna have these names. So, the, the city Nazareth, where did the name come from? Okay, listen, I have tried to do some research on the name Chesbro, um, I have looked. And uh, I know it's an, a last name over in England, but I, there's not much information out there. I tried to investigate on why uh, we're called Chesbro, And if you have that information, come talk to me after the service. I'd like to talk to you, pick your brain for a little bit. But you see, it's always interesting to look at the, the sources of where the city names came from. So where did the name Nazareth, where did that come from? Well, see, it came from the occupation, from the carrying away into these foreign lands that that Israel went through. Because what is a netzer? We have all seen this. I've seen this. And if I've seen this several times in my life, I know you've seen it. Have you ever seen on a wood line or in a forest or or you see something where a tree either, either dies and falls over Or the wind blows it over and it dies. And after a few years, in the middle of the stump, a sapling begins to grow. And it's growing out of this dead old tree stump. New life springing forth from death. That's what a netzer is. And and the people that named the city was saying, look, you may have chopped us down, knocked us over, but we're growing up again and we're going to be a new branch. We're going to be a new tree sapling. We're going to be a tender shoot. And this is a picture of the Old Testament giving way to the New Testament. This is a picture in the life of a Christian where your old life has passed away and the Son of God who has redeemed you is given you new life springing up. And it was in this city that our Savior grew and our Savior shot up and he grew into a man. Now, the next city mentioned here is the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is two Hebrew words, Beth and Lechem. Okay, I had to practice that, okay? And uh, you see, and what they mean is they mean house and they mean bread. So if you put the two together, Bethlehem means house of bread. So why in the world would Jesus be born in Bethlehem, uh, the house of bread? Why was Bethlehem even named? Why did they name the city the house of bread? Well, the reason why... All the bread came from there. Literally, literally, all the bread came from Bethlehem. I mean, it, 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 it's the breadbasket of Judea. It's where all the fields were. It's where they grew all the wheat. It's where they grew all the, all the barley. Hey, you remember the story of Ruth? When Ruth goes out in the Boaz's fields to gather the barley for the bread, it's because Bethlehem was the breadbasket of Judea. Ruth gleaned in these fields, she gleaned a grain for bread. So Bethlehem, the house of bread, is the perfect place, place for the bread of life to come, to come from. The bread of life that feeds us, the bread of life that sustains us, and the bread of life one day that will be broken for us. You see, both Mary and Joseph, they were descendants of David. This is important because, you see, Mary being a descendant of David made Jesus the physical heir to the throne. Joseph, being a descendant of David, made Jesus the legal heir to the throne. God's steering the ship. He is in control. Let's begin reading in verse number 5. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. Um, I used to love going on vacation. And my dad, he didn't believe in hotels. My dad pulled a camper everywhere. We're going to the Mount, Smoky Mountains, get the camper. We're going to Daytona Beach, get the camper. He believed in camping, man. And so what would happen is every time we got ready to go on vacation, Two weeks before that, I would start packing the camper with my stuff. I would I was, be, I'd be 9, 10 years old, and I'd be putting my clothes in my bags and taking them out to the camper. And when I needed clothes for those two weeks, I had to go to the camper because all my stuff was in the camper. But I was just excited to go on vacation. Now, my dad was one of those dads that didn't believe in stopping. There was point A, there was point B, and there was nothing in between. Okay, you were lucky if you got a bathroom break. Okay, it was, it was go, 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 and don't stop till you get there. <clears throat> that was my dad. Now, I grew up and I, I became a man and I had a family and I tried that for a little while and then after a little I was like, uh, we're stopping, okay? Uh, we're going to stop at a hotel. We're going to stop in a Motel 6. We're going to do something um, because I, I'm just, you know, I'm tired of driving. Isn't it the most disheartening thing when you are driving and you are tired and you take an exit to an interstate and and, and you go down in and, and down that road, that for that the road that runs right beside the interstate, and you're looking at all these hotels and all you see is no vacancy. No vacancy, no vacancy. And it's tired. You're tired. You can barely keep your eyes open. And all you see is no vacancy, no vacancy. And it's the most disheartening feeling when you know you need to stop and, and, and you just can't stop. Well, that, that's kind of like what Mary and Joseph was going through. Now, I want to explain to you ends, okay? Because the ends of today are not like the Motel 6s, okay? All right, Tom Bodette's not promoting these, okay? So here's how the ends work. There's a circle of rooms. Now, you go in these rooms, and these rooms had an elevated floor that you could go in and sleep in for the night. But there was a circle of rooms, and in the center would be an open courtyard, Sometimes there might be, uh, you know, Bethlehem was a very poor place. Uh, Sometimes it could have been like a a natural awning, a rock or a cave or something where the animals were kept. But most time these were just open courtyards in the center. Now, I hate to destroy your picture of uh, the nativity, but we want to be as accurate as we can. So it was either an open area or it could have been a cave. That they stayed in now. Justin Martyr, who lived 150 years after Christ, he says it was a cave. Now he's closer to it than me. All right, Uh, but either way, it's not an ideal place to uh, have a baby. I mean, sometimes my you know we used to go up and uh, and give the cows the bottle. Man, I remember that. Waking up, it's still dark out. There was a hot water heater in the barn just to make the calf milk. And we'd we'd mix up that stuff and put the nipple on the bottle and feed the calf. But I tell you what, that barn stunk. Man, I didn't want to spend as much time as I could in there. I, I couldn't imagine having a baby in that smelly, dirty place. Now, it says that they laid Jesus in a manger. Once again, I hate to destroy your nativity at home. We have a nativity scene at home, too, that's on the the table, okay? It's precious to us. I hate to destroy that, but it wasn't a wooden feeding trough, okay? We can go back, and through archaeology, we can go back and see the type of feed troughs, the type of mangers that they had back in the day. And what it was is it was a rock, okay, maybe three or four feet high, and the top of it was scooped out they would hewn out the top of the rock and they would scoop out and chisel out the top of the rock so it was hewn stone where they'd put the feed. Now, that's interesting. It's interesting to me that when Jesus was born, he was placed in hewn stone. And when he died, he was placed in a tomb that was hewn out of stone. I think this is a picture of his death. Now, the word manger is also pretty interesting. Did you know in your Bible the word manger is only in your Bible five times? Four of those times is in the book of Luke. The word manger is only in the Bible one other time in the book of Isaiah. In fact, it's at the very, very beginning of Isaiah. I mean, I'm talking the first two or three verses of Isaiah 1. The word manger is there. I'm going to read it to you. Isaiah chapter 1, we'll read verses 2 and 3. Listen to this. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons, I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand the master's manger, and Israel doesn't know about it. Israel doesn't know about it. They don't understand it because they've revolted against God. We tell a story every year. Every December, we tell a story. Now, we don't know that he was born on December 25th, but it's as good a date as any. And every December we tell this story about the master's manger. And Israel doesn't care because they revolted against God. And Israel doesn't know. And Israel can't understand. Man, if you can't see God in the Scriptures foretelling of today, then I don't know. This is a situation that's going on. This is real. Prophecy isn't made up. Prophecy is real. Okay? Okay? This is real stuff. I also want you to notice that there was no room in the inn. Now, isn't it just like that? Haven't you noticed that the world never has any room for Jesus? Have you ever noticed that social media doesn't most of the time have any room for Jesus? And our government doesn't have any room for Jesus? And Hollywood doesn't have any room for the real Jesus? Isn't that interesting? that there's no room for Him in the world. Look, there, 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 there may be... Uh, let me ask you a question. Is there room for Jesus in your life? Man, they had room for religion. They had room for the world. But they had no room for Jesus. Is there room for Jesus in your life? Now, the swaddling clothes. What about the swaddling clothes? swaddling clothes was a piece of, piece of cloth four or five inches wide, It was 18 feet long. What they would do is they would salt the cloth. They would take the baby and they would make the arms and legs straight and they would take this salted cloth and they would wrap the baby up. Okay, really, really tight. Now, this was an ancient practice. Many ancients did it. And the idea was that you did it the first few days the baby was born and the limbs would grow straight. Okay, so this was the thinking behind it. But it's very interesting that in the first few days of Jesus' life, he was wrapped in cloth, placed in hewn stone. And man, if that isn't a picture of his death, wrapped in cloth, placed in hewn stone. He was buried in the same way. Now, the scene is going to shift. The scene shifts to the shepherds. Let's begin reading in verse number 8, and we'll read down a few verses. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before him, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, "'Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy.'" which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, uh, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Now, I want you to understand the life of a shepherd. The shepherds, the shepherds, they lived without much interference from the townsfolk, okay? Their business kept them very isolated, all right? Not, not much went on in the life of a shepherd. It's pretty monotonous. It's pretty mundane. It was kind of the same old, same old everything. You know, sometimes you feel your life gets in a rut. And you do the same thing over and over and over. And man, the shepherds, the shepherds' days were like that, except for this not so silent night. Man, I love that song, but this night in particular, it wasn't too silent for the shepherds. You know, when the angels showed up, the first thing angels always say is, "Don't panic, don't be afraid, because we are generally terrified." Of angels, I know an angel would have to tell me not to be afraid, have to tell me uh, not to panic, uh, because we're generally, generally we're terrified of them. Let's start reading again in verse 15. And the angel, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying one to another, "Let us go to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us." So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. You know, I always get a kick out of these shepherds because they're just so excited. I mean, they're stoked out of their mind. They're excited about what's going on. They're saying, can you believe it? We're shepherds. And the angel came to us of all people. He came to us. Man, we saw some things tonight. Man, Man, this is awesome. All that we've heard and all that we've seen. One of the reasons why they were just excited out of their mind to be able to even be a part of this is because shepherds were at the bottom of the social ladder. They were absolutely at the bottom. And that's who Jesus came to. He came to those at the bottom. That's who He he showed Himself to. Listen, these shepherds, they were ostracized. They were marginalized. They were excluded. They lived their lives apart from the other people. In the book of Genesis, we see the Egyptians didn't even want to eat the same table with them. And the Jews didn't want to be around them. Part of the reason why the upper echelon Jew didn't want to be around a shepherd is because a shepherd could not be, could not be ceremonially clean. They were always ceremonially unclean because of what they did for for a living. They worked 24-7 without a break. They never took a Sabbath. They, 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 They never complied with any Sabbath regulations. Because of what they did, they were always watching. They did this kind of work every day of their life. So by the elite of Jerusalem, they were considered unclean. And nobody wanted to be around them. They were at the bottom, at the lowest rung of the social ladder. And that's who Jesus decided to announce his birth to. And and I just find it awesome that when God sends this great news, he didn't go to the blue bloods in Rome and Athens and Jerusalem. He went out to the blue-collar workers out in the field who was out there in the filth with the with the sheep. But you know what else is interesting? Did you know that we have Jewish writings that tell us that Jerusalem got its lambs from Bethlehem? Because, you know, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem they sacrificed the lamb every evening. And that they got their lambs from Bethlehem. So, in effect, these shepherds were going to see the Lamb of God, which is going to put them out of business. Because what Jesus is going to do He's going to do something for all time, and no lambs will need to be slain anymore. You know, following the progression of lamb sacrifice through the Bible is an interesting thing because you see that, that as you follow God's grace expanding as man expands. Let me explain. You go back to the Garden of Eden, and it's one lamb per person. One lamb was sacrificed for Adam, for Eve, one lamb for Abel, and Cain, uh, he he didn't bring a lamb, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. You go on through the Bible and you come to the Passover in Egypt. And by this time, it's one lamb slain per family. And then you go into the tabernacle in the temple, and in Yom Kippur, it was one lamb slain for the whole nation. Until you come to Jesus and it's one lamb slain for the entire world. I told you last week, without Christmas, there is no Easter. God became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God became flesh. I want to tell you this, Jesus, He was a man with two natures. He was fully God and He was fully man. What this man did is He opened up the Scriptures to us because the New Testament is the answer to the Old Testament anticipation of a Redeemer. And only in the incarnate Christ those promises are answered with a resounding yes. 2 Corinthians 1-2, For all promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him we utter our amen to God for His glory. This man Jesus, He makes God accessible to us. In the Old Testament, the Israelites needed a mediator. They said, oh, we can't hear God, the thunderings. uh, God's voice will kill us. And so Moses was a temporary mediator, but they needed a permanent mediator. And Jesus, He said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. In in the first chapter of 1 John, in the first few, I think, four verses, John says, we saw Him six times. He makes God accessible. He is the mediator. 1 Timothy 2.4 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ, Jesus. This man humbled himself. We needed to be rescued. And so he humbled himself in Philippians 2, 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. I get this. This man, Jesus, calls us to live for him. Did you hear that? He calls me. and He calls you. And he calls you. He calls us to live for Him. Second Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those might, might live no longer for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, we know who Christ truly is. He is, he is God and man and one beautiful, glorious person. And let me tell you what knowing Christ will ensure. Knowing Christ will ensure that you're you're changed by him. Knowing Christ will ensure that your eternity is changed. Knowing Christ will ensure that you find the purpose in your life. Knowing Christ will ensure that you find joy, that you find happiness, that you are led and guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. You are not your own for you are bought with a price. Knowing Christ will ensure your life He will ensure that you will be changed. I I don't know about you. I want to be changed by Christ. I accepted Christ when, when, when I was nine years old. And I asked Jesus to save me. And I asked Christ into my heart. And I've been saved since I was nine years old. For 30 years I've been saved. But every day I want to know Christ more. Because the more I know him, the more he will change my life. And what we need in Chesbro Baptist Church, what we need in these pews is we need men and we need women who aren't afraid for Christ to change your life. Christ Wants to change you. He wants to do a work in you. He wants to do something special. He doesn't want us just to come to church to fill time. We come here to worship Him, to get close to Him. He wants our life changed. Desperately, desperately wants to change our lives. And He wants us to go out of these walls... He wants us to go out into this community. He wants us to go to these houses. He wants us to go to these businesses. He wants us to go to our workplace and spread the news of Jesus where He can change them. When's the last time we ministered to anybody? It's not that hard. Just go up to somebody and say, can I pray with you? Is there something I can pray for you? Oh, I don't have a prayer request. Okay, well then let me just pray a blessing on you. Just reach out to them. Reach out to their spirit. Help people. Minister to people. Show people the love of Christ. I am so glad that 2,000 years ago, Jesus showed his love in a manger in a place called Bethlehem. Man, and he wants us to do the same thing. He wants us to show his love for others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor more than you love yourself. Jesus is in the business of changing lives. I want to tell you something. In the coming year, this church is getting ready to change some lives. This church is getting ready to change some families. This church, I'm telling you, if you want to go on the status quo and you want things to go like they've always gone, I'm telling you, Jesus wants us to change people's lives. And it's time to get out of the comfort zone. It's time to get a little uncomfortable. I'm sure Jesus was comfortable in heaven. But he gave that up for me and for you. I'm excited to see what God is going to do in this church in the coming year. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, he's getting ready to do a work. I'm just glad I'm a part of it. Are you going to be a part of it?